0: So I left off before I took off in Genesis 6, verse 8. So we'll kind of pick it up there. Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generations of Noah. Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We looked at this a couple of Sundays ago. I'm all wrap up some things maybe. This is the the prelude to the flood you always have to ask the question, why? Why did there have to be a flood? Why is it necessary? If you don't know this, there are over 300 ancient cultures that have a flood narrative in their history, that there was some time in their collective mind that there was this massive flood, which is kind of incredible. Noah is he went viral before it went viral. Like Noah was known throughout the world. The Romans had a coin with Noah on it. So he's just, he went viral before it was viral. So this is like a well-known thing. The reason is because Noah and his three boys repopulate the earth and they take with them this story. So there's all these different like ideas in those stories about why God decided to destroy the earth. One of my favorites is the Babylonian story of the flood. And the Babylonian story says the reason why there had to be a flood was the gods became annoyed with people because they were too noisy. Isn't that awesome? With seven kids in my home, I'm like, yes, (laughs) flood, (laughs) where is it? Now, why is it? Well, you got to back up to verse five, and it says, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, very important term, was only evil continually. Aren't you thankful that no one can read your mind? That no one knows your thoughts? Like praise the Lord, no one can know what I'm thinking right now or what I was thinking. If people knew that, none of us would have any friends, right? It's just that simple. So God knows like, hey, these people, they're really broken and I've got to do something about it. So Noah becomes, if you would, the last of his kind, the last good guy. The good people have gone extinct. There's none left. So you can read that verse, you can read, we'll keep reading. God says, you're the only one. Everyone else has gone south. So I'm going to start over Noah with you. And if you look at Adam, who began humans, and Noah, there's some striking similarities between the two guys. Adam has three sons. One of them is no good, right? Caleb kills his brother. He's no good. What did I say, Abel? Abel? Cain killed Abel. Thank you. I was actually testing you. I really knew. I was just making sure you guys are paying attention. Adam inhabits this place, the audits the land. It was a land formed out of chaos. Chapter one, verse two. The deep, the deep God hovers over the water of the deep and calls out of it this beautiful place. So he, he resides in a land called out of the sea. He lives in harmony with the animals. The animals come to him and he names them. But then he sins and he ends up naked and ashamed. Noah. Noah starts out righteous. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He's gonna occupy a land that's now called out of the sea again, right? The sea, it goes away, the chaos that, cleanses the earth, goes away, and he is going to reside in this new land. He lives in harmony with these animals on the ark. Like the lion's not trying to kill him and eat him. So he is in harmony with these animals, right? But then at the end of his story, he sins and he ends up naked and ashamed. I think it's very fascinating. Why is there this harmony between these two kind of uh, originators, the originator of Genesis 1, you know, that story. And then you have the, the next originator, Noah, his, his story almost sounds exactly the same. Why is their trajectory the same? I'll put it this way. What gets on the ark? You got some animals on there. What else gets on the ark? S- some people, right? Noah His wife, three sons, three daughter-in-laws. You know what else gets on the ark? Sin. That's why. It's showing us something. These two stories that are almost parallel, it's God showing us something. Hey, look at Adam couldn't do it. Noah, even though I start all over, he can't do it either. As you read Genesis, you're supposed to be getting a certain kind of idea that like, hey, this thing's broken, People, people are broken. There's some kind of prevailing nature of sin that the flood cannot cure, which is why I believe it's more than just wickedness of people is the reason why God brings the flood. It's not just the wickedness of people because that doesn't solve it. The first dude gets off the boat and he blows it as well, right? We'll look at chapter, and I think there's a lot of interesting things in there. It's deeper, right so the real source of the issue it's verse 5 a heart and if you know your bible biblical theology the heart is the problem it's something has to be done about the human heart that in genesis chapter 3 a serpent wrapped around the human heart and its poison begins to poison that human heart and it's now looking out for its own it's selfish it's not loving it's broken and so then the movement of the Bible, Deuteronomy 30, et cetera, is God's gonna do something about that. That's the only solution to this problem. Floods don't solve it because sin just joined in with them. The solution is much, much deeper. All right, so verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it, the length of the ark, 30 cubits its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die." To keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. One of the big questions that I think every person asks is, Who's going to do something about all the evil? I woke up this morning. I read how in Syria, kids had been gassed by their leader. And this is not the first time. This is the second time. We know back in 2013, Assad gassed his own people And 1,400 of them died, mostly kids, because for some reason, kids are more susceptible to it. And if if you watch, there's there's just gruesome videos of kids dying from this last gas attack. And you read it, and you have this righteous indignation, and you're like, "Man, man, I see this. Who's gonna do something about it? So James on Sunday hit on the book of Habakkuk, which is, that's its whole purpose, Chapter one, verses one through four is Habakkuk saying, I see all this injustice and all this wickedness. God, what's the deal? Are you going to do something about it? And the rest of the book is God going back and forth. Yeah, I'm going to do something about it. And then Habakkuk says, well, what are you going to do about it? And God says, you won't understand if I told you. No, tell me. So God tells him and Habakkuk's like, I don't understand. Why are you going to do that? (laughs) Well, I told you you wouldn't understand, right? (laughs) And it's this war like back and forth. Like, Well, I warned you. But it's a question like, oh. So here, here's what you see in verse 11 and 12. It says the earth was corrupting God's sight. Verse 12, and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. It's telling us God sees. It's not a mystery. He sees what happens. He sees what Assad is doing in Syria. He sees. And then in verse 13, it's God saying, and I'm going to do something about it. But here's the thing: We know from this point until the flood is 100 years. See, God is super patient. Our lives sometimes may not encompass God's patience. And, and when I think about the flood narrative, to me, revelation is always the key to understanding, like God's judgment and God's justice that it expands on the theology of God judging and God's justice on wickedness. And there's this interesting little text in chapter six where it says the souls of those that had been killed by this wicked, evil regime, they were underneath the throne and they were praying to God. And this is what they were praying. How long until you avenge our deaths? justice. And you read that, and for a second, you're like, wait a second. Where's the love? Where's the forgiveness? They're yelling for justice. Go get them, God, and they're in heaven. What What about forgiveness? What about love? That doesn't seem like Jesus, does it? There's a pastor. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, big-time guy in the 20s and 30s. Total pacifist. You read his writings in the 20s and 30s, 100% pacifist. He's like Hacksaw Ridge. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fight. Not going to do that. Not going to fight. Until he started seeing what Hitler was doing in the concentration camps. And he left New York. He was safe in New York. He left New York and traveled back to Germany. Do you know why? because he was gonna assassinate Hitler. He made an assassination attempt on Hitler. Pastor Bonhoeffer. Man, I'd like to run with that kind of crew. There's some pastors I can hang with. Oh, man. He puts, gets put in a Holocaust camp like five days before I read his, uh, just excellent, Eric Metaxas' uh, biography, five days before the war's over. He's taken because they knew it was over and he's killed out of spite. This is what he writes when he was going back. He says, God is love, but also God is just. And if you believe only in a God of love, you'll think you can fool him. And if you believe only in a God of justice, you will fear him. But if you believe in a God of loving justice, you'll serve him. And that's what he did. And it cost him his life. God is both just, and God is both loving. And this does not contradict Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 18 says, hey, see these little guys? If someone offends one of these little ones, it's better that a millstone be hung around his neck and he'd be flung into the sea. That's a better end for him. That right there. I always say, I love my mafia Jesus. That's is justice, that it matters, it matters. I'm texting a buddy last night about getting together with him tomorrow and uh, he texts me back, he goes, hey, I'm in foster care classes right now. And there's these, if you've done them, they show you these videos. And if you've watched the videos, he, he just texts me back, I'm watching these videos, he just said, man, this is so messed up. I, I texted him back, I know, man, I cried. Because it tells these stories of what happens to some of these kids, and you're like, "That is, that's, that's messed up." I believe in a God of justice. What's interesting in Revelation six is this: "Avenge us, avenge us, avenge us." You know what God's answer is in verse eleven? Wait, wait. God is yes, loving justice, but He's unbelievably patient. He gives these people a hundred years while Noah is preaching repentance. Gives them a hundred extra years. He gives the Canaanites 400 years. In Revelation chapter six, no, wait, wait, wait. Give them every last opportunity to change and repent. When I think about that, and when I get all riled up in my own kind of, uh, I have to remember, I'm supposed to be just as patient as God. I need to give people around me every opportunity to change and to repent and to be something else because that's what God does for me. It inspires me to be patient like him. And notice verse 22. This is a theme. Build this ark, do this stuff, pack this up. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Short verse, 100 plus years of time. (laughs) He did everything God asked him to do. Obedience is costly. This is going to cost Noah 100 years of his life. Who's paying for the lumber? Does he have access to like a heavenly account? No, I think Noah's paying for it. I can just imagine his three boys coming home from school and be like, dad, everybody's teasing us. They think we're the weird family, right? And then no one can figure out what you're doing. His wife's like, really, Moses? Moses? I mean, come on, why can't you be normal and go like build a man cave or something? Why do you have to build an ark? I mean, come on, right? It's costly. 100 years of him doing this, obedience, obedience, obedience. Obedience is costly. Sometimes what God asks you to do, it's gonna cost you. There's this family down in Carmen right now. Uh, the husband's name is Caleb. Totally bright dude, on it, just all the potential in the world. Hey, do what are you can do. You've been here for a couple of years, what are you doing? He goes, I'm gonna be here until I die. Really? All your potential really? down here in this forgotten dust bowl? Really? That's a waste of a life. But is it? Is it? It's costing him something, and he's willing to make that sacrifice. And I think, man, that is noble. Man, wow obedience is costly. But in the United States now, we don't really obey like we used to. Here is the dominant philosophy of America now. It's called pragmatism. I'm just going to do what's practical. I'm going to do what's best for me. Imagine if Noah had said that. You know, God, this is just not practical. And it works itself out in tons of ways now. The the pragmatism, well, you know, i got to keep my job, but if I told the truth right here, I'd probably lose it. So what's best for me right now is to lie. So people lie. Well, you know, if I was really honest with my spouse about things, I don't think it'd go well for me, so a little deceit. Well, if I told people about that, it's going to ruin my reputation, so i going to protect my reputation. It's called pragmatism. It is now the law of the land. But notice something. Because Noah obeyed and it cost him, what did he end up with? An ark. And it saved him and his wife and his three sons and his three daughter-in-laws. He ended up with an ark. Yeah, obedience is costly, but it buys you the best protection in the world. Obedience is costly, totally, but it buys you the best protection in the world. Because here's the thing about sin, and when you start compromising on things and not obeying what you know to do, here's what happens, it changes you. You start lying, and then lying gets easier, and you got to tell more lies to cover the lie that you told. And then pretty soon you lie, and you ask yourself, why did I just lie right there? I didn't even need to lie, I just lied. Do you know why? You've become a liar. It's changed you. And you're exposed. And eventually he's going to come back and get you. Obedience is costly, but it buys you the best protection in the world. So he makes this ark. And people have figured out how big it is. It's considered uh, to be a 43,000 ton vessel, right? Similar, very similar in size to the Titanic. The only difference is it doesn't sink, which is good news for Noah. And he's an amateur. Right? So it's big. People have calculated, like, it'll fit enough food, you can fit enough water on it, fit a thousand plus animals, you know, the, the kinds. It, it, it could do it. And you obviously take young people in, no doubt, take all the young, not the old, take the young. But man, they're going to grow on the ark and they're going to get bigger, you know, and elephants going to grow really big. Here's what's fascinating about genes. Did you know this? That there's this thing called gene regulation, and depending on environment, Different genes are turned off and turned on. you you can Google, it's called epigenetics. Like it's the overriding genetics. So if you put a certain animal in a different environment, it'll actually grow differently. I'll prove it to you. Uh, There's this family called the Dickersons. Perhaps you've read about them where this mom had six kids and she moves to Ontario, Canada. Nobody will rent to her with six kids. So guess what she did? She hid three of the little kids for 11 years in the attic. They never came out. Well, guess what happened to him? Look, look at this picture of them. Look at the size of them. What is this guy? Three feet, 11 inches. He's 15 years old. She's 16 years old, right? So they thought, oh my, so they were starving them. No, they were absolutely educated, totally bright kids, no malnutrition, no disease. They were fit as a fiddle, just short, just dwarfed. And the only reason they could figure to this day is, lack of exposure to sun turned off some genes for growth in them and they just didn't grow right. So I think there's a roof on this thing. It changes how animals grow and how they develop and maybe they just don't grow like they normally would have but once they get out, start having kids again, things change and they become normal. You can turn that off. So if you do the calculations, I guess, it, it can work. It can totally work. One note before we leave chapter six. In verse 14, it says, cover it inside and out with pitch. The normal word for pitch in the Hebrew is himar. This is the word kofar. If you're a Hebrew dude or a Hebrew gal, you know that's the word normally translated atonement, the covering. So, it's a fascinating wordplay. Get in this wooden box that becomes your atonement, your cofer, and it's going to save you from God's wrath and judgment, which, biblically speaking, is the entire Bible. So, amazing. Um, second note there's no rudder. There's no rudder on this ship. You know why? God's saying, You obey me and you build this and I will get it where it needs to go. To me, that's a life lesson. Matt, you obey me and you build what I'm telling you to build and I'll get you where you need to go. That's what Noah has to trust. (laughs) I can't steer this thing. All right, I'm gonna build it. I'm gonna obey and God will get me where I need to go. All right, so chapter seven, we'll do this super fast. Then Yahweh said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you, singular, are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that Yahweh had commanded him. A repeat of verse 22 in chapter six. So this is the theme. Notice something though. The dad obeys and his family is blessed. Over and over, God says, Noah, you're right. Noah, you're right. He never mentions the family. He never mentions the kids, he never mentions the spouses. It's always Noah's righteousness, one man's righteousness saves the rest, which is another very fascinating thought. But for a dad, for a dad, dads obey, obey. And God, I believe, like Noah, brings a blessing on your sons and your family. Our job is to obey. God, does what you told, us, told me to do. It might make us weird. We, we may not fit in with what, it doesn't matter because you told me to do this and I'm gonna obey, trusting. My obedience covers, in a way, my children and my family. So that's what Noah does. Verse six, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So there are people that start questioning the Bible, like one week In one week, you're gonna get all the animals on and stashed in and everything, really? And they start calculating that. Okay, if that was true, then uh, if eight of them were working, each of them would only have one minute and 32 seconds to put every animal on the boat. That's impossible. So they have all these ideas like this wouldn't work. Well, number one, as a believer, God's involved, right? God's involved in this process. And I believe... God told the animals, "Get on the ark." And in the Bible, guess what happens when God tells animals to do things? They just obey. Frogs, head down to the Nile. Get in Pharaoh's bed. Get in Pharaoh's food. Yes, sir. Right, donkey. Talk to that guy Balaam. Yes, sir. Right, fish. Pick up that coin. Grab a hold of that hook. Yes, sir. Animals, get on the ark. Yes, sir. Humans, love one another. Nah, not gonna do it, right? We're the only rebels. We're it. So God just says, animals, do it, and they do it. So I, I got no problem with that. I, I believe God's involved in this process. In the 600th, verse 11, year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to its kind, And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and Yahweh shut him in. There's only one way in to the covering, and God controls the door. Interesting. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep and all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all the swarming creatures that swam on the earth and all mankind Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. <laughs> That's the flood. Chapter eight picks up some of these things again. We'll cover that again. But here's the big question I wanna to try to tackle. And it's, when I was in seminary, it would come up quite often. Was this a global or local flood? Did it cover the whole earth? Or this term, ha-audits, that's used for the earth, normally refers to the region of Israel. It does not refer to the cosmos, the entire world. So there's reasons people have to say, It's local, and there's reasons people say that it's global. I'll say this. You do not have to believe in a global flood to be saved. Jesus saves, period. But I do believe there's a lot of evidence that says this is a global event. And it wouldn't make sense to me if God says, hey, Noah, spend 100 years and build this ark If it's only local, he would have just said, get a wagon. In fact, I'll show you how to make a Model T and just drive a little ways away and I'll take care of it down here, right? Some of this, it, it doesn't make sense. It seems strange to me. So here's one of the big objections. There's not enough water to cover Mount Everest, right? It says the highest mountain, verse 20, was covered by 15 cubits, 20 feet, 25 feet. So what's the deal? Is there enough water? Look at verse 11. It says something that I think is fascinating. Very, very specific day, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Here's what I believe. And there's evidence for this. I won't get into the boring details. I just try to give you the big picture. I believe pre-flood, the earth was a lot flatter. That anywhere that there was the great deeps of water, those regions would have been higher. And once those areas, the water left them, what happens is they sunk down. So all of a sudden Mount Everest sticks up higher. It didn't stick up that high before because there was water underneath the ground. And once you pull out that water, what happens is the ground actually sinks away. You're saying, what in the world are you talking about? Well, right now you can go to the San Joaquin Valley and you can see it. Look at these pictures, let's see here. Okay, this happened in three and a half hours. They say the reason why this road buckled is this happened a couple years ago, was right, we had a drought in California, remember that, before this year? And they were pumping like crazy out of the aquifers underneath the San Joaquin Valley. And what has happened now is what used to float, if you would, the ground, it's gone now, and the earth is actually sinking. So look at this next picture. All right. There is, see the top up there, 1925? There's where the San Joaquin Valley used to be. But due to pulling out water at the San Joaquin Valley, it is literally sunk like 70 feet down. Check it out, it's unbelievable. So the entire San Joaquin Valley right now is like 70 feet lower than it was just 90 years ago because they're pumping out so much water and what used to support the land is now gone and it's sunk down, okay? So now multiply that by a million when the great deeps are gone and what used to be nice and smooth now sinks down and the jagged rocks of the Everest and the Alps and that begin to stick up. So it wouldn't have been as much water as we think would have been needed to cover the whole earth. So that's my own personal theory. Um, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I think that's how it works. I'll, I'll talk with you afterwards. The mountains arose and the valleys. Like it. I didn't even think about that. Thank you. Psalm 104. Awesome. Another thing, some other, like... If you've ever hiked, I've been in the Kalmyopsis wilderness, 4000 feet above sea level, been camping and digging around for stuff and found seashells. You ever done that? You're like what in the world is this? How are there seashells way up here? Well, something happened to put them up there. Maybe a flood is a good way to explain it. Fossils. How do you get a fossil? What's the normal process when an animal dies? it decays, decomposes. There's just some green grass, grass, that's it. In order to get a fossil, you have to have very specific things happen. It has to be covered with mud really quick, because once bacteria get in, they'll actually still live in it and decompose it even if it's covered. So it has to die and quickly be covered by mud and pressure. Well, maybe that's the flood. In fact, they, they, they look at the column, they say, well, look at old, like, really, 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 really old animals were down here that were less, um, lower, yeah, less evolved. They were, the, the higher life forms are higher and the lower life forms are lower. Could it be possible that higher life forms were smarter and could swim stronger? And so they actually survive longer as the other ones are dying off quicker. And then you're having just mud cover them quickly. And then the, I think that's what actually happened. You look at the geological column, that actually makes better sense of it than this idea that, hey, you go deeper and it's older. No, it doesn't seem like it, all right? Um, There's, does anyone know about the Grand Coulee up in Eastern Washington? You ever driven through the Grand Coulee? It's unbelievable. Like we, everyone talks about the Grand Canyon. The Grand Coulee is phenomenal. They're damming it now. And of course, you don't see much of it, but it's like the Grand Canyon, So they had, for the prevailing thought of the Grand Coulee was a little stream, cut it over a long time. Now, Google the Grand Coulee, Wikipedia, any of it, and they're saying, no, it didn't actually happen that way. The Grand Coulee and all this stuff that's up there, these massive, massive canyons were formed in 48 hours or less, that there was some massive water that was released back somewhere Canada, wherever, and it came through and it actually ripped up all the topsoil and deposited it in the Willamette Valley. That that, the reason why the Willamette Valley is so good is it got all the topsoil from Eastern Washington. It just scraped it up. They said the wall of water would have been 400 feet tall in Portland. That's unbelievable, right? Something happened up there that's cataclysmic and unbelievable, all right? The Grand Canyon, Long time was thought, you know, formed this way. No, it didn't form that way because it goes straight through hills. That doesn't happen with water. Water always goes, it's it's the path of least resistance. Well, the Grand Canyon cuts through topography that goes up and down, just goes straight through it. Something extremely powerful happened. They think, again, some massive water back in Montana, huge amount, uh, the Salt Lake, something came through and just tore this thing up very quickly. So there's all this kind of evidence. The other one that I found fascinating was the Mediterranean Sea. They believe the Mediterranean Sea was formed recent. And in their time, you know, recent means whatever. But they think there was actually, it was like, um, it's like the Dead Sea. There was just this massive uh, area that was way below sea level, but it was actually dry. And at Gibraltar, there was a dam. And then at some point that dam was breached And they said it was like 5 million Niagara Falls, just boom, because you're having the entire oceans now emptying into this massive, massive area. And they said it would have taken nine months at that rate to fill. But what happens when when you fill up at at a fast rate, you push the air up. If anybody knows what happens when you push air up, it's called adiabatic cooling. I say that word just because it makes me sound smart, but... There's adiabatic cooling, which means this. As you push water, push air up, um, it cools down. When you cool air that's humid, you get rain. They said you would have had rain from that entire landmass moving up at that rate. That would have been unbelievable, like unbelievable for a long period of time. There's all these like, hmm, that's fascinating. Hmm, go to Mount St. Helens when you get a chance because this is the most recent example of something catastrophic happening and changing an entire region overnight. So Mount St. Helens blew 1981, whenever it was, May. Uh, Remember if you were in Grants Pass, I remember getting ash on my car. Like it came down this far. And there's all this stuff that happened. Spirit Lake was dammed for a couple of years. And then that dam burst. And in the course of hours... The mud flow from Spirit Lake moving down that valley carved through bedrock 100 feet deep and made what they call a mini Grand Canyon in hours. It really redefined how many scientists believe the earth was formed. It didn't happen over a long period of time. It happened like these catastrophic events, like Spirit Lake, like the Grand Coulee, like the Mediterranean Sea. There's these catastrophic events that caused what we see today. So... There's a lot of evidence for a global flood. I believe it's global for those reasons. But we're left with some hope. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So there's still hope for the human project. Adam blew it. It got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. worse. Noah's the last of his kind. He's saved, he's put in an ark and there's a little bit of hope. Noah with seven travelers. God's gonna say, I will recreate now with you. And if you look at the Bible, that's the cycle. You look at Israel, that's the cycle. Over and over, you, you, you blow it, God recreates. You blow it, God recreates. Let me read one prophet for you. It's Jeremiah, listen to what he says. In the beginning of his ministry, this is what he's supposed to preach. Jeremiah 1.10. Behold, I have set my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. How how wonderful would it be to have that ministry? Thanks, God. But then, chapter 31, listen to this. Verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares Yahweh. Then verse 31, "'Behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will make a new covenant "'with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, "'not like the covenant that I made with their fathers "'on the day that I took them by the hand "'to bring them out of the land of Egypt,' My covenant that, I, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares Yahweh, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of these to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I'll forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin." no more. With God, there's always hope. Broken, busted, wicked world, hopeless, flood. Everything's lost. Everything's evil. But God says, I'll start over. I'll start over. We're going to pluck up, tear down. But then God says, chapter 31, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to do it better this time. I'm going to change your heart. I don't know if you came in here tonight maybe hopeless, maybe reading the news about Syria, seeing the devastation of people. I don't know if you came in here with your own brokenness, your own mistakes. And you might be thinking, God, what are you gonna do? Isaiah 61 says God gives double for his shame, for our shame, that God will take all of our junk and turn it for something good. So if you need, after this service, to be prayed for, because all of us end up in Jeremiah one times, where it feels like God's plucking up and breaking down And it's hopeless, and it feels like there's wickedness around us, and we're making mistakes, and it just compounds. God's the one that can change that. I love chapter six, where it goes, There's all this wickedness, all this wickedness, and then it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Do you know you can find favor in the eyes of Yahweh? It's super simple. You believe in Jesus, it's that simple. So maybe you need prayer, maybe you need help. I'll be up here, some pastors will be up here. We'd love to pray for you. We'll just say, hey, let's pray God's favor on your life tomorrow. Let's pray that the flood becomes a recreation, a better creation. Let's pray that God gives you that new heart that we all need because there's this serpent that wants to poison us with selfishness and sin. And so we pray and say, God, change us. So Jesus, I thank you for your redemption. That's the story that we read. That you take what the enemy would want to use for evil and you turn it for good. That for those that love you and are called according to your purposes, we know all things work together for good. And so for those of us, Lord, that maybe our love has dimmed, our obedience, it's cost too much, and so we haven't obeyed, but I pray that this night you would regather us. You would re-win us, and you'd re-circumcise our hearts so they feel and love you again. I pray that we'd be those that go from here, knowing we have this treasure in earthen vessels, willingly giving it up to others, Lord that you have loved us so we can love others. You've been generous to us so we can be generous to others. You've forgiven us so we can forgive others. You've been gracious to us so we can be gracious to others. You've been patient with us so we can be patient with others. May we take the treasure that you've given to us and may we extravagantly spend it on others tomorrow. I pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.